This is Gulf Coast Live from WGCU. I'm John Davis. Thanks for joining us. The Inflation Reduction Act, signed into law earlier this month by President Joe Biden, is a broad-reaching piece of legislation supporters say will lower the federal deficit by about $300 billion by creating a 15% minimum tax for corporations earning $1 billion a year or more. On the health care side, the more than 700-page spending package takes the historic step of allowing the federal government to negotiate the price of certain expensive prescription medications with pharmaceutical manufacturers each year for Medicare. It also includes a three-year extension on subsidies for health care coverage for people with plans through the Affordable Care Act. That will help millions of Americans with ACA health care plans avoid steep hikes in their premiums when open enrollment starts in November. But the focus of our conversation on today's program is the more than $360 billion in the new law slated for energy and climate reform. That's less than the $555 billion Democrats had initially sought, but it's still the single largest federal investment in clean energy in U.S. history. Goals include reducing U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by 40 percent by the end of the decade based on 2005 levels. The law is also slated to increase job opportunities in the manufacturing sector. The law includes a slate of tax credits and rebates intended to help millions of low- and moderate-income Floridians reduce their carbon footprint through the purchase of more energy-efficient household appliances, electric vehicles, rooftop solar and battery storage systems, and home improvements that reduce energy leakage and helping to reduce residents' electric bills. Criticism of the Inflation Reduction Act stemmed largely from its investment in fossil fuels, including subsidizing the construction of new pipelines and guaranteeing new leasing for oil and gas drilling and incentivizing investment in still nascent carbon capture technology to allow existing heavily polluting fossil fuel burning facilities to continue operating for decades to come. Those concessions were added in order to garner vital support from Democratic West Virginia U.S. Senator Joe Manchin. The measure received no support from Republicans in either the House or Senate. Critics say the ongoing investment in fossil fuels will continue the disproportionate negative impacts and risks to low income and communities of color that are already located near industrial sites. Joining me now for a closer look at what the Inflation Reduction Act could mean for climate change mitigation here in Florida is Dr. Jennifer Jones. She's director of the Center for Environment and Society at the Water School here at Florida Gulf Coast University, where she's an associate professor in the Department of Ecology and Environmental Studies. Her research and education interests include the relationships between people and nature, including political ecology, biodiversity conservation, global food sustainability, and environmental governance. Jones also currently serves on several commissions through the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Dr. Jones, welcome back to Gulf Coast Life, and thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, John. I'm really happy to be here today. And to engage with us and your fellow listeners about this conversation or any of our shows, find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. On Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. Now, Dr. Jones, when we last spoke on this show following the Supreme Court's ruling that, that takes away the EPA's regulatory authority to set limits on carbon emissions from existing power plants, you noted that despite being known as the sunshine state, just 4% of energy production in Florida actually comes from solar. The Inflation Reduction Act provides tax credits covering, I think, 30% of the cost of installing solar panels and battery storage systems. And a fact sheet on the law from the White House predicts this legislation will result in more than 1.1 million additional Florida households installing rooftop solar. 
is this a significant boon? You had spoken about your own situation with buying a home here locally and just the cost of installing solar being so cost prohibitive. I do think this is a really important investment and more importantly, a package of incentives that are going to make it possible for homeowners like ourselves, as well as local businesses, to get that rooftop solar and to buy solar from providers. In Florida, we have a lack of solar power, as you just mentioned, driven by the amount of money that the fossil fuel industry has put into maintaining their monopoly. Every year, oil, gas, and coal spend $120 billion lobbying to maintain the status quo in the system that has kept Florida really dependent on fossil fuels, especially natural gas. So I think with this new legislation, this $369 billion that you referred to, it uses carrots rather than sticks, right? So the carrots are incentives. It's going to provide tax credits and other incentives that help the energy providers make solar more affordable and easier for us to get. And it's also going to make those incentives available to homeowners, like you said, yeah, Florida has less than 4% of our energy coming from solar, yet we claim to be the sunshine state. So I think this money will hopefully allow us to move past some of the politics and uh, lobbying that has kept solar off of my rooftop and probably a lot of other people's. Yeah, so, so broadly speaking, because I know the Inflation Reduction Act was something in the works before that SCOTUS decision we talked about back in July, but it seems like this is an interesting sort of workaround. The EPA doesn't have this regulatory authority, so if you're going to deal with the existing utilities, there has to be a way to incentivize them to invest more in solar in a way where they're not necessarily going to be losing a lot of revenue. Yeah, so the Inflation Reduction Act, what it it really does more than anything we've seen in the past is try and address the root causes of climate change. So first off, let's be clear, climate change is the greatest threat facing us today on this planet. If you live on planet Earth, this is the greatest threat we face. In southwest Florida, where we are ground zero for climate change, it is our most urgent daily threat. And I know it can feel like it's not uh, if we have time today, you know, I would love to go into what I call the the crisis of misinformation yes. that we're having with climate change. But I think in terms of the SCOTUS decision on, on EPA and trying to find, you know, is this bill the, the White House and the, the Democrats and others trying to find a workaround to that? You know, perhaps I think it's also if we go back to the Build Back Better program from last year, over two trillion dollars was originally the the goal, mm-hmm. right? For for money to make an investment in climate change mitigation. These things we're talking about to prevent more climate change, as well as the other part of climate change, that that idea of resilience and adaptation, which is you know how do we prepare our communities and ourselves to better withstand those impacts. So. This takes an important leap forward, really around prevention, right? How do we stop emitting more carbon dioxide and methane and other greenhouse gases that are are really what's warming up the earth and putting us all at risk? So this is 
I don't I don't even want to know say that it's necessarily a compromise in DC. It did come out as a bipartisan bill. It was an even split 50-50 uh, with the vice president breaking the tie. And like you said, there were some allowances put in there to bring that last Democrat, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, over the line, including allowing continued use of fossil fuels and some new drilling and some new leases on federal lands that you mentioned. So I think more than um, appeasing or finding this as a sort of workaround for fossil fuel companies. I think one of the things that the conversation needs to be focusing on is the way that this legislation has been written is that regardless of what your politics are on climate change, this is great news for Southwest Florida because it's going to lower the cost of uh, renewable energy. And then the other thing is it's going to make our economy stronger. It's going to create jobs. And it's also going to position America to be more energy independent. We're not hearing much about that right now in this bill because, again, the just sort of political noise that's going on and and other things happening. But the money required or sorry, the incentives and the companies that become eligible for these incentives to get them, whether they're a company that's going to design and build solar panels, whether they're a local company, a local small business going to install them, whatnot. You know, the components of solar, the components of these large scale battery systems that would be installed, the grid updates, those electric cars that might qualify for a rebate. Under this program, the components have to be built and or manufactured or assembled in the United States. And so what we see is this bill also really trying to position the U.S. as a leader in clean energy jobs and technology. And I think that is something that uh, it helps move all of us towards cleaner energy. And I think it really does a good job or at least gets us uh, moving forward and positioning our economy to be where the future of energy is and renewables and not where we've come from in the past with oil, gas, and coal. Is this a particular boon for Florida, not just because of the unique geography of our state and so many of us living along a coastline where rising seas are going to become a problem if they haven't already? Is it a boon because so much of Florida's strategy as it exists already is based on, as you said in the past, adaptation, building seawalls, elevating roadways? And this is really um, a, a big step towards mitigation, which has really been missing from Florida's strategy. Absolutely. So again, the Inflation Reduction Act is $369 billion towards preventing future greenhouse gases, right? Which makes all of us safer here in Florida by limiting additional problems with climate change. It's going to create those jobs I mentioned, and it's going to protect our health. So as we are ground zero, I think... um, For climate change, what we have seen happen over the past handful of years is really the increased politicization of climate change. You know, environmental issues used to really be bipartisan. I was thinking the other day, thinking about Teddy Roosevelt, right, one of the historic beloved Republican presidents perhaps the most important person that created so many of our protected lands in this country, forests, national parks, all those places that protect water, uh, places that we use for recreation, places that are important to our economy. You know, last time I was here, I mentioned um, Nixon, a a Republican, basically, you know, being the original signer and convener of the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. And so, 
Environmental issues really used to have broad-based support. In the 80s and 90s especially, with the rise of climate change in the public sphere and the political dialogue, we see oil, gas, and coal really pouring, ultimately, billions of dollars into these misinformation campaigns. And trying to maintain their industry, you know, they used a strategy that Rex Tillerson at, at ExxonMobil, this is all public now, they've released some of their records and things, um, you know, basically said their their goal was to sow doubt about the science. Right. And so it's been a really effective strategy. And so let's jump forward to where we are today in Florida in the middle of an election season. And uh, we see over this campaign cycle, the politics of climate change getting increasingly partisan. And, you know, I would say that the the governor and and other candidates this year have really leaned on an uh, anti-science, anti-education tone uh, to strengthen their campaigns. And so... Ultimately, Florida is in a position where we have invested and are continuing to invest money in that adaptation, building seawalls, strengthening roads, while simultaneously denying that humans cause climate change. Well, that's why adaptation is so easy. You don't have to ask that question. Yeah. 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 And And nobody's against it. And so, you know, I don't know if it's a perfect metaphor, but one of the things I was thinking about this weekend is it's sort of like um, I was outside looking at my house and looking at the roof and imagining that in some ways, like climate change mitigation is is essentially like the roof on my house. I have to have a strong roof and make sure I'm maintaining it. It's in good working order to keep everything else under it safe. And so in Florida, we're like investing money in adaptation, which is like new floors and new furnitures and new kitchen counters and all those nice things that are nice and that we need. But we're totally letting the roof fall into disrepair. Yeah, you've got load-bearing walls that are crumbling. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And so, you know, I I think, again, I, I think it's really important, regardless of your politics, to understand that. You know, this partisanship around climate that we also saw in that recent poll that was published. But, you know, in some recent polls and some recent data coming out of southwest Florida, we see belief in human-induced climate change actually going down. We see less folks believing in the science and more folks believing in the doubt. And for me, who looks at data, who understands the historical trends... And the actors and the issues of money and power that are at play over here of decades, like that is a willful campaign that is being put on. And ultimately, it impacts all of us and puts all of us in danger here in southwest Florida. As well intentioned as this Inflation Reduction Act is, I'm... I'm wondering if you see a little bit of a cart before the horse aspect to it, because I'm, you know, I'm seeing, you know, rebates of 50 percent or more on getting more energy efficient appliances in your home. But I mean, we're operating at a time when even people who are homeowners are seeing the cost of everything higher than they've been in the past, even just basic necessities like groceries, even with these carrot incentives. I mean, there aren't a lot of people with all this money burning a hole in their pocket to buy brand new appliances. I'm wondering if maybe the White House predictions on the impact this is going to have might be a little overblown. Well, you know, that's always hard to know, right? We get all these budget estimates from OMB and and other folks about the the impact. I think the number I would point out is a study just released by Princeton University that looked at will this bill achieve its goal to reduce emissions 40 percent 
below 2005 levels by 2030. That is the goal. And the latest report by Princeton University said, yes, it will. It's expected to reduce at 42 percent. I looked at studies by two other think tanks who also expect that it will achieve those levels. So I know a lot of us, you know, are, are quick to point out that, well, you know, I can't, uh, I don't have any, like you said, extra money laying around to, yeah. to even if I got a rebate, even if I got credits on these things. But one way to think about it is, number one, these dollars, your own dollars in your house, but more importantly, those from our government, which are our tax dollars that work for us, are a great investment for the long term. We cannot basically continue to ignore the long term over short term, especially when we're running and living in a political cycle. So long term, those are good investments for our country and, and for our community. One of the things I always tell my students, I teach classes in global food systems and in, in conservation and development issues, and, and I'm a political ecologist uh, by training. And so that basically means I look at the politics of nature, the politics of environment, and, and I always explore issues of money, power, and identity. Like those things are always brought to bear in environmental issues, right? And I always tell my student that no environmental issue is separate from social issues. And when it comes to how these issues affect our household finances and our wallet, here's the way to think about climate change. Climate change is already impacting your wallet. Make no mistake, if you live in Florida, you are already paying for climate change. Household insurance rates have gone up and will continue to go up. Flood insurance rates have gone up and will continue to go up. Your food, your water, as the cycles and seasons of drought and fire become more unpredictable every year, it is harder to deliver cheap food, cheap, clean, affordable water. So we're already paying for the cost. Here's the other thing we don't talk a lot about. You are already paying for the cost of climate change in your health, right? We talk a lot about the health burden in environmental studies, we also talk about this idea of externalities, right? It's kind of a, a complicated word, but it basically says that the cost to produce this dirty energy is already being felt by all of us. We are already paying the price. If you're a parent that has a child with asthma, you're paying the price. Yeah. If you're somebody that perhaps lives on the canals or the water around here that's impacted by blue-green algae and red tide, and you've either gotten sick your business is closed or some other impact, you are paying the cost. Those are ending up in your wallet. You just don't see them the same way you do when you write that monthly check to yeah. pay your utility bill, right? And here's the rub. We're paying the cost while other people are benefiting, right? And so, again, when energy is mostly being pumped into to Florida from out of state, that we're buying oil and gas produced from out of the state, we're basically sending our dollars elsewhere. And so people are profiting off of that. And we like to think we're getting cheap energy, but we're not because of all those costs I just mentioned. So I think an, another way to understand and think about how the Inflation Reduction Act and just the move towards clean energy is good for us as individual people and households is that it creates more energy independence. It puts energy production here locally in our communities and our state 
and in our country. And when some of us were really feeling the pinch in the gas pumps earlier this year, yeah. that was because of oil crises, you know, on a different continent. Right. Right. Because we're still so dependent on that global oil market. And so, again, it's trying to help all of us understand, regardless of your politics, that this is an investment that ultimately will put real money back into our pockets, regardless of whether you support it or not. I hate to make it all about me, but I'm a renter. I don't own property here. And in the last four years, I've seen my own rent go up more than 50%. And so I'm looking if are there any sort of incentives here that might impact somebody like me? Because I'm not personally going to dig into my own pocket to spend money on on more energy efficient appliances that are just going to add equity to a home I don't own. Right, right, or, right. Certainly. First off, the bill includes, you know, those sort of incentives and credits we mentioned for homeowners themselves to upgrade their appliances, their HVAC, if they wanted to install solar on the roof, that sort of thing. But aside from that, the largest chunk of the bill is actually to incentivize the production of clean energy that hopefully any and all of us would be able to buy from the grid. So... It will incentivize whether it's existing utilities like FPL or perhaps incentivize new utilities to produce and sell clean and renewable energy, such as solar and wind. So as a renter here in southwest Florida, you're probably still paying your FPL bill. Then uh, you would continue to pay that, but hopefully uh, be able to see that that is solar, wind, locally produced energy because FPL will have been incentivized to produce that. The bill also includes money for storage of energy, battery and and other large scale technology, not sort of household size that would make delivery of that energy possible. So I'm not sure where this bill is going to shake out in terms of... um, Let's say like how your personal landlord, you know, might put solar on their rooftop. It certainly could. And uh, whether they just choose to as an individual, the bill does incentivize small businesses. There's um, block grants in there for communities as well. So they invest in solar, especially in low income communities. There's a lot of incentives in there that would allow small businesses to basically generate solar that they would sell then to local low income communities. But back to your situation, if you're a renter in Southwest Florida, you know, it was just I think it was last year when there was a bill basically that was going to make it possible for um, landlords to install solar and sell that energy to their renter. And it was a bill proposed in Tallahassee and, of course, got killed. It got killed during a strong lobbying effort, no doubt. So the, the dream, perhaps, for your landlord one day is is that they could indeed be putting that solar on the roof and uh, selling that energy to you. As a renter in the future, that could be a place where you're using your dollars to influence what the housing market looks like. Because if you had a choice between apartment A and apartment B, and apartment A had solar, and you were to tell them, well, I really like this. I want to yeah. be part of this movement. While I don't think consumers should have to drive these large systemic changes that are needed, you know, that could be a, a, a 
uh, way that you're playing a role as well in the the solar um, revolution that we need here in Florida. All right. Well, if you're just joining the show, we're exploring how the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act could impact climate change mitigation efforts here in Florida with Dr. Jennifer Jones. She's director of the Center for Environment and Society at the Water School here at Florida Gulf Coast University. If you'd like to comment on our conversation or engage with fellow listeners, again, we're on Facebook at WGCU Public Media and on Twitter, we're at WGCU using the hashtag GCL. Um, I, I know that this law, this new law, is also trying to help push more of us to ditch the gasoline-eating cars for electronic vehicles. Um, can you tell me a bit about what the intended impact is there and how that might work? Yeah. So, you know, at first glance, I think the uh, the bill seems pretty hopeful in terms of increasing the amount of electric vehicles on the road. It's actually understanding how it's going to work is a little nuanced. For those folks that maybe have bought an electric car in the, the past handful of years, they might have gotten up to a $7,000 rebate um, or credit towards the purchase of that vehicle. And uh, this bill takes that similar thinking, which is how do we incentivize the market to produce those vehicles? And then how do we incentivize consumers to actually buy those vehicles? So we see a chunk of change in there. I think it's probably the third or fourth largest pot of money in in the bill that would indeed provide, I think it's a $7,500 or $7,000 tax credit. Yeah, for a new car. A new car. And $4,000 for a used electric vehicle. Yeah, and so that part is new. Uh, Previously, that $4,000 for a used vehicle was not available. So, But this is where the devil is in the details, probably in a good way. So I mentioned earlier about, you know, the parks uh, of these new clean energy technologies having to be manufactured and or assembled in the United States. And this includes electric vehicles, right? So not every vehicle will qualify. Moving forward, companies will be further incentivized to create those jobs here in the United States around clean energy. And that's what I meant earlier when I say, like, this is a real boon for setting uh, the United States up to be a global leader in clean energy. So there's a a lot of devil in the details in terms of which vehicles will be eligible. And I, I do think this is simply a start in the direction of putting more electric vehicles on the road. There's a finite amount of these credits and they will sell out, I would expect, very quickly. But I think that demand will help make the case for more of those credits. And, and that is a winning strategy in the future. Is there something in this legislation that also addresses the need just for more electric vehicle infrastructure? Because that could be a thing that keeps people from making that leap and making the conversion. There is. And, you know, this is a large spending bill, right? $369 billion, largest amount of money ever put forward for climate change in the United States, uh, if not the world. And so it's 700 pages, as you mentioned. There's a lot of little buckets of money and uh, charging stations are, are part of it, little bits of money as well that would help uh, buy electric vehicles for certain government agencies is, is part of that. I think as more and more of our energy is produced through renewables, through solar, through wind, those charging stations, the ability also simply for the technology to get better, that motivation will be there. And uh, I think in the the very near future, even driving around here in southwest Florida, it's increasingly easy to not worry about uh, running out of power while you're trying to get to, to work or to school. 
What about the concessions that this legislation makes when it comes to actually supporting the fossil fuel industry? In some ways, you could look at this bill and argue that they probably got it just right because no one's really happy. (laughs) (laughs) Both sides, you know, are equally displeased or rather there are a lot of people on both sides of the aisle really unhappy with this bill. And in D.C., that typically means you, you probably got it right, which is, I mean, they barely squeaked it over the line, but they did. And so you're right. You know, uh, uh, concessions were made. Um, You've mentioned a a few of them. I think carbon capture storage um, is, if I may say so, it's a a red herring. Um, It is a lifeline to fossil fuels industry to keep producing dirty energy under the guise that somehow they're going to capture those greenhouse gases and and sequester them. That technology is not proven Um, And where it is proven, um, it's not proven at scale. It's extremely expensive. And so there's some some money there that supports that as a strategy. Uh, That makes a lot of people upset because that basically says, well, you know, keep up with the the oil and gas as long as you're trying to sequester it. I think earlier I had used the word nascent to describe this carbon capture, but maybe that was even giving it a little too much. <laughs> yeah. And it's I mean, the idea has been around for, yeah. for, for decades. And, and so in general, we talk about sequestering carbon, which is, you know, how do we keep it out of the atmosphere? How can we we keep it out of the atmosphere and or grab it and then tuck it away so it's not up there? you know, basically insulating the planet. And so one of the best ways, of course, we sequester carbon is in trees and forests and in nature, which is the best place, right, to sequester carbon. Ideally, we, we want to stop putting it out there. But and so, you know, carbon capture and, and storage, again, is um, it's an idea that sounds great. Um, but best case scenario, I was reading a, a study recently, is maybe you capture 95% of the, the carbon, which sounds like a lot, but it costs so much money to capture that. It's just not economically feasible. Imagine that if you have a, a plant that is producing cement or, or some kind of plant that's manufacturing something and it's producing carbon, and you decide you want to okay, let's sequester it. We're going to create and install the technology to stop the carbon from leaving that plant and and then sequestering it and then burying it underground, putting it in mines, injecting it into um, underground wells. Essentially, you're going to have to build a power plant next to it to simply operate the carbon capture and storage technology to gather the carbon coming out of that plant. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really tough Uh, Another element uh, that has uh, upset some folks in regards to appeasing the oil and gas industry is the continuance of uh, leasing on federal lands. So the bill uh, requires that some federal lands will continue, at least have the option open for leasing oil and gas Um, properties out to the market. And so a lot of folks may not know on public lands around this country, including here on Big Cypress National Preserve and in other places in Florida, there are active oil and gas mines, certainly out west, the federal government, largest land owner in the country, um, operates these leases that they bid out and, and sell. And so they're 
a good deal if you're the company who's buying them and can get in there and install the infrastructure and then mine the oil and gas and then sell it. So the companies who benefit from that, they do not want those leases going away. So it upsets this continuance of, of carbon capture, storage and technology, the continuance of leasing on federal lands upsets a lot of folks because it basically continues the, the status quo of oil and gas. And and Florida's primary election is this week. Um, You know, as we look at how closely this 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 measure passed, you know, with with literally it took the support of every Democrat. Are you worried about what the outcome of this election could be in November in terms of just how little it would take to change the power structure in D.C. to where this wouldn't have passed? I am. I, I, you know. I really believe that we won't solve the climate crisis until we solve the misinformation crisis. Uh, Again, you know, our environment did not used to be this politicized. And our personal health, our jobs here locally that are connected to the environment, whether you work in tourism or conservation, they are all put at risk through the danger of climate change. And it really concerns me that what used to be such broad-based, commonly held values and a long-storied history in the United States of conservation, of environmental protection, is just being used as a bludgeon. And it's being really used to further divide um, Floridians from each other. And so that really concerns me. And and. The, the nature of the anti-science and anti-education movement as well. You know, I work in, in STEM. I work in environmental education. I, and, you know, I'm a professor. I teach students for a living. And, and to know that, that this misinformation is purposefully um, setting our young people up to not understand actual science and really what's at stake – that's worrying. And, and those are the long-term risks that we're taking in this state for the short, short-term um, election yeah. cycle. And so I, I would really love uh, for our region and, and for the state of Florida to just really uh, embrace much more dialogue about those common values and interests that we have around environment. I think if you ask most people, want clean water. They want clean air. And I absolutely think that we can find some common sense solutions that people will gather around if we could just get politics out of the way. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's a right answer to this question, but since you're an educator and this is your field, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious about any insights you have on how to boost that more general public education. You've probably seen a recent video that's gone viral from Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene talking you know, against solar. Um, because she likes to have the lights on at night. And then I was hoping this would be met with a collective groan from the audience of that's not how any of this works. But instead, it was an applause line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, yeah, we're uh, applauding, yeah, misinformation. And um, I'm, I'm sure to offend some people by saying ignorance. But that's really what it is. When, I mean, we're all ignorant in aspects of our life. But it's, it's one thing to be ignorant because we don't seek out information. It's another th- thing to be basically fed lies and Mm -hmm. and misinformation. And so one of the most important things I I think we need to recognize when we we look at the anti-science movement um, is the role that the media has increasingly played. Each of us, when we're looking at our little screens, 
You know, we're in these tiny little worlds and and typically uh, they're echo chambers, right? We seek out social media and YouTube and all those things that further reinforce our existing beliefs. And so this is what I meant earlier is that we find ourselves now understanding or caring less about environmental issues directly related to us. And then rather we're just parroting the the beliefs that we happen to find in those echo Uh, those echo chambers that are typically very partisan. So, you know, some of the things we're doing here at the Center for Environment and Society, I can tell you about in terms of trying to address that gap is environmental education. And by that, I mean trying to get kids outside, right? Learning about nature in your own community. We've got several grants right now. We're running from NOAA, which is helping train teachers and kids to do hands-on science outside. You want to learn about water quality? Let's go out to the pond on campus and learn about it. Understanding mangroves and, and seagrasses, let's learn about them here in Southwest Florida. And so giving that direct experience, number one, um, building that personal connection makes us all good learners. That information number two really gets through when you see it for yourself. I think, you know, most of us, it's funny, we believe in climate change in that we'll sit around and say, oh, it's getting hotter this year. We've had more flood days this year. I think, I don't know, today I think we're breaking a record. Maybe we've had you know, three or four heat days in a a row now that have broken records. And so we're quick in one place to see it and and believe it and and not in another. So uh, in terms of overcoming, you know, some of that anti-science movement, um, training our teachers is a real important strategy that we're working on now, just giving them the tools they need, the curriculum they need. And, uh, you know, here in Florida, we do not have... um, any state uh, funding or department really that supports environmental education. And in fact, we're moving backwards in the other direction, right? Taking money and opportunity away that would otherwise get kids outside, going to their local state park, going to their local beach, going and experiencing those places firsthand. I think even environmental education that isn't specifically about climate change or climate change mitigation does so much for that. shameless plug for FGCU's colloquium program. I mean, for me, it was more than 20 years ago, but I I mean, being able to identify the wading birds that I see every day made me more of a, I don't know, literate, like (laughs) environmentally literate person. And that knowledge, even when it's not directly connected to, say, lowering your energy bill or, or heat stress days, it makes you care more, I think. <laughs> it it does. And and absolutely connecting as an individual to place. Yeah. Right. The colloquium is is and I work with the colloquium really closely and that's one of the absolute beautiful elements of it is place based learning and and um, getting to experience those things here locally. And so making that personal connection matters. However, I would say and warn us that uh we should not have to take on the individual responsibility or sense of responsibility that we as individuals are going to solve the climate crisis, hmm. right? So if I may, I want both sides of, <laughs> of this, this idea, which is number one, yes, understand your connection to the local environment, understand your role as a civic participant, whether it's through elections, understand your household, your consumption patterns. 
But on the other hand, recognize that true change for protecting Southwest Florida, the country and the planet, is only going to happen at the systems level. No single person driving an electric car or making food choices is going to solve the climate crisis. Again, it comes down to these large, powerful corporations and actors who are using a lot of money to convince us to think otherwise. And it's only through investments in delivering clean energy for all of us, not just those of us that right now can afford it under current market conditions, Mm -hmm. that's going to solve climate change. You know, we shouldn't have to just have a finite amount of rebates possible for electric cars and the lucky folks who win that lottery and have the money get to drive an electric car. Every one of us could and should have an electric car if we decided that is the future, actually the present that we want in this country. So I'm always really careful to to tell my students and and all the folks I work with, which is see yourself in connection to the local environment. Don't blame nor expect that you alone are going to solve it. Good point. Good point. I think that's been a strategy that we've seen uh, coming from some of the, you know, biggest culprits of polluters is to try and to be like, look at how we're helping you solve this problem and putting the onus on the individual. It is indeed. And again, there is a, a long history and, and follow the money of um, lobbying tactics and especially of marketing tactics uh, that really tries to shift the responsibility of good decision-making, if you will, onto the individual. And I know for most of us, myself included, you know, we're busy people, right? And so at the end of a long day, when I need to stop at the grocery store and pick a couple things up, like, I don't have the bandwidth to read every label and to read the ingredients and where does my packaging come from and what's the footprint and, and all those sorts of things. I mean, why can't I just show up and assume that the products for sale on offer are good, good for me and good for the environment. And that's the world we can create if we want it, right? Uh, And if we hold uh, companies and, and those systems accountable. Again, make no mistake, you're already paying the cost of everything, including, you know, when we look at agriculture, Um, In terms of the contributions it makes to climate change, uh, polluted water, uh, degraded landscapes and erosion, we're paying those costs in our wallet and our personal health. And uh, but because it's out of sight, out of mind, uh, we don't focus enough on it. Well said. Uh, That is about all the time we have for today's show, but I want to thank my guest. We've been speaking with Dr. Jennifer Jones. She's director of the Center for Environment and Society at the Water School at Florida Gulf Coast University. She's also an associate professor in FGCU's Department of Ecology and Environmental Studies. Dr. Jones, again, thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org gcl, or subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by Jared Gonzalez and yours truly. Our director is Richard Chinqui. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thanks for listening. I'm John Davis. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida. Thank you.